Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 27th, 2020. This week's show is about Kobe Bryant's life and legacy on and off the court. On Sunday morning, Bryant's private helicopter crashed in Calabasas, California, killing him and the other eight people on board. Among them was Kobe's 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. We'll be joined later by Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch, as well as Lindsay Gibbs, who writes the Power Plays newsletter. But first, I'm going to welcome in my co-hosts. Joining me in Washington, D.C., the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, Stefan Fatsis. Hey, Josh. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Good morning, guys. So on Sunday, it seemed like pretty much everyone in the world was sharing their thoughts on who Kobe Bryant was, what he meant. Before any of that, Joel, was just the utter shock that he was dead at age 41. It felt unreal and unfathomable. Uh, originally, it felt like maybe it was a mistake, uh, like it couldn't possibly have, have happened. What were your initial thoughts when you heard that Kobe had been killed in a helicopter crash? Well, obviously, you know, my thoughts went in a lot of different directions, right? The first that occurred to me, and I did tweet about this, is the parallels to the day that Michael Jackson died and that the absolute shock of it. Like, I remember looking at my computer as it came across and I just said, that can't be real. Like, you know, there must be something wrong. Am I looking at like a a fake news story from AmericanEagle.net or something, right? And then the idea that TMZ was the first news source to report it. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, you know, how did TMZ find this out? Who, you know, where are they getting this information from? And then, you know, the scramble over the next few hours about, you know, how many people actually died? How did this happen? Who was involved? Um, And then just sort of grappling with even the, the part of the quote, you know, I'm using air quotes here, complicated legacy of both of those men. There was just a lot that reminded me of that day that Michael Jackson died. And also because, you know, Kobe meant something to, unique to L.A. in a way that Michael Jackson did, too. That he was an, especially like an L.A. celebrity, a, a creature of the L.A. celebrity culture uh, in a way that not many other people are. And I, when I think of L.A., I think of like Michael Jackson, Jack, you know, Jack Nicholson, Magic and Kobe. You know, Because it's not a surprise that like, you know, so many of these guys are Lakers, right? So... Those were the things that first sort of occurred to me. And then I went, you know, there was this quote from this 2014 New Yorker profile. And he mentions the challenge also has to shift to doing something that a majority of people think that us athletes can't do, which is retire and be great at something else. Giorgio Armani didn't start Armani until he was 40. 40, there's such life ahead. And he's 41 years old. He's like, oh, God, you're right. Kobe could have had another 30, 40 years. Who knows what else? Um, It just seemed that. Kobe, it's not that he seemed invincible, but that for someone that famous, that omnipresent, that historically indomitable, it just seemed as if he was sort of beyond the reality of mere mortality. And uh, that's sort of what I took from yesterday, I think. The outpouring for him was also similar to the outpouring for Michael Jackson, whether it was, you know, people like Barack Obama or 
every athlete, but just it was inescapable. His death kind of overwhelmed everything in the world in, you know, sports and the Australian Open and Neymar's game at at PSG and just all anyone could think about or talk about was what Kobe Bryant meant, what Kobe Bryant meant to them. And Stephanie saw that in the NBA where um, the games went on and there was this kind of spontaneous league-wide decision of taking 24-second shot clock violations and eight-court backcourt violations to start the game in honor of Kobe's jersey numbers that was kind of a lovely impromptu tribute, but also a testament to, as I think it was Lonzo Ball who said that Kobe was our Jordan. The NBA players in the league now, Kobe was their hero for so many of them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you frame athletes and their greatness in the era that 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 you grew up in. I mean, and there's, you know, definitely for anyone, you know, your memories of who the greatest were when you were a child are the most indelible, I think. And for players in the NBA who were between the ages of 20 and 30, Kobe was that guy. I mean, Jordan is really a generation removed for them. He's someone from posters and from videos. Kobe was someone that was watched. So to see that was, I I I thought those spontaneous tributes were fitting. I did wonder whether they should have played at all. I mean, you saw players crying on the court before games. And you can say the athletes do what athletes do and, you know, you got to keep playing. But I'm sure this affected the mental health of these guys. Kyrie Irving did not play. I don't think that actually got a whole lot of attention, Joel. But Kyrie Irving was apparently so broken up over Kobe Bryant's death that he left Madison Square Garden and didn't play against the Knicks on Sunday. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I, you know, I I did see a lot of the the conversation yesterday around the idea of whether or not they should have played. And I... I never know kind of where to go on that because, you know, the NBA isn't like you tend to think of it as a family, but it's also a business. Right. I remember Malik Seeley died, you know, a few years ago. And I'm like, well, what, you know, nobody was canceling games for Malik Seeley. And so I was like, we're sort of the line, like which players are important enough and which aren't important enough for, you know, players to decide to take a day. I don't know. Like I take very seriously the idea that those guys were hurting and that they didn't want to play. But I'm also I kind of understand that, like, that's a really massive undertaking to decide in one day, hey, we're going to shut down all the games for, you know, all sorts of reasons. You know what really got me yesterday is like watching LeBron do that very long walk. And I don't know who it was that hugged him. Um, But man, it just was like, God, man, this is really weighing on these dudes. And you just don't, I mean, I'm struggling to think of another day in the history of the NBA that I can remember so much spontaneous emotional outpouring. You know what I mean? It has to be Magic Johnson's HIV announcement. Yeah, that must be it. I remember that. I was working. I was, and I was riveted. The entire newsroom stopped. It was watching the TV and watching in disbelief what we were seeing. Another day that where the news sounded fake, right? Like, were you just like, what? What do you know? Right. What are you talking about? Right. Yes, absolutely. And uh-huh. another guy who was mythologized during his life and um, partly with Kobe, it was self-mythology. He created a legend and embodied it 
Sam Anderson wrote a piece for Slate in the mid-2000s about Kobe and, and Michael Jordan and about how Kobe lived his whole life in quotation marks, how Kobe tried so desperately to be the next Jordan on the court, off the court, his obsessiveness, even the way that he treated his teammates. You know, Nick Young talking about how Kobe was an asshole, but, you know, you still loved him. But did they actually love him? But just the way that he worked so, so desperately hard to be Michael Jordan. And he got as close as anyone. And as we saw with this generation of players, they didn't see it as phony. They didn't see it as fake. These are the guys who would know better than we would. And they revered Kobe and thought of him as the pinnacle of NBA success, an icon for how he worked and how he played on the court. It's like magic in that way. It's it's somebody who not only was great, but embodied greatness for you know, his peers and for his fans. I watched that video, the side-by-side of Jordan and Kobe. It is astonishing. I mean, I remember watching this whenever it was first put together five or 10 years ago. And the mimicry, the it's uncanny. I mean, it's not as if in the moment, you know, he's dribbling against the Jazz or the Cavs or whoever. And he says, I'm in the exact situation that, was, that Michael was in in a game in, you know, 1992. But it's scary to watch. And it does reinforce how driven Kobe Bryant was to be as great as the player who was the greatest before he came into the The player league. who for me and Joel, I think for our generation, like Michael Jordan was the guy. And so it's just, it's deep, you know, the way that this line has been passed and it's almost too much the, the way that LeBron passed Kobe on the scoring list on Saturday and and Joel he LeBron went on this long soliloquy about what Kobe had meant to him and before this was before the accident before Kobe died talking about how LeBron was playing in a high school all-star game when Kobe was playing in the NBA all-star game and Kobe gave him a pair of shoes and LeBron wore them even though they were a size too small and just the way that these guys are connected from LeBron to Kobe to Jordan to Magic it's amazing. I think about that a lot because, you know, if you go back to the comments that LeBron made after the game, like if you just took them out of context, it almost sounds like an obituary, right? Like he's, he's um, saluting a guy that he surpassed in his career. And it's like thinking back on the memory of Kobe. Um, and then the next, the next day for him to die is so eerie. And so I actually, I, I go back to the 2008 Olympics where, you know, they called it the redeemed team. It had, you know, Kobe, Bron, Wade, Carmelo, Chris Bosh, uh, Chris Paul, you know, all these other great players on it. And when things got desperate in the gold medal game against Spain, they deferred to Kobe. And you even hearing about the practices and everything after that. All those guys said they learned so much from watching Kobe, from the getting up early, getting in practice, watching film, studying the opponent. That I'm always typically a person that's skeptical of the idea that like one guy is working that much harder than a bunch of other professionals. But clearly there's something that Kobe impressed upon all these other great players, even amongst them. They believed it was real. And that's enough for me to say, well, you know what? Maybe I should listen to these dudes because they know who's real. They know what's fake. They know what to be impressed by, what not to be impressed by. And if LeBron says he learned from Kobe, then who am I to like say that Kobe doesn't deserve this place in the game, that doesn't deserve this stature in the NBA? Right. And for some truly transcendent athletes, that behavior, that drive 
you know, is a is, you can't be that way without it, right? But for some of them, it also manifests in their personalities. They are assholes in that driven way. You can't be as good as Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant without, to some degree, being an asshole and alienating people and having some sort of personality, not flaw, but characteristic that alienates other people that leads you to believe that no one else understands who you are or how driven you are, or how you have to be, or how important it is for you to work as hard as you do to achieve the greatness that you want. And this gets back to the myth-making because Kobe turned that negative into the Mamba mentality. He spun that into, I'm not an asshole, I am the ultimate asshole. Asshole, right. Mm -hmm. And he took that kind of competitiveness, obsessiveness, compulsiveness and made it into a brand. And I think as I was reminded and reading a lot of stuff in preparation for the show, that Mamba nickname came out of the sexual assault allegations against him, that he came up with that nickname for himself as a way to compartmentalize during that season in 2004 when he stood accused of, of sexual assault. He was going back and forth between Colorado and and games and in LA and and elsewhere and he said you know Kobe is the guy who has to deal with all of that all off court stuff and the Mamba is just the killer on the court and over the years the kind of origins there were largely forgotten and what was remembered was that image that journalists and fans and other players really really bought into he used it as the last words he said in the last game of his career Mom walking out. off the court he used that as his sign off after his last game after scoring 60 points mamba out and that personal myth making josh that you referred to i think you hear it in some of the tributes or at least the quotations from people after his death too that they didn't really know him well that he was you know, he could be cordial and a good teammate, or he could be a driven asshole teammate like Nick Young was referring to, but ultimately that nobody was really close to him. Uh, uh, Charles Barkley said in a piece that Jackie McMullen wrote for ESPN, I don't think anybody knew Kobe well. I ain't going to lie about that. Every time I saw him, he was courteous. He'd come by and say hello, but then he'd keep it moving. He always had to keep it moving. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, let's welcome in Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch. 
Hey, Gene, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. Thank you all for having me. The last time we talked to you on this program, I made a whole big joke about how much you hate Kobe. I set up this whole scenario about it on our live show. Mm -hmm. But it was a thing that I knew about you, that a lot of people know about you, a thing that you talk about on, on Twitter a lot, that you were not a Kobe fan. And it's a day, uh, a couple of days, where there has been this just tremendous outpouring for him. And I was just curious kind of how you feel, how you felt when you heard that he died and and how you felt kind of in the 24 hour sense. I've actually been kind of surprised at how disorienting it's all been. I mean, I think a lot of people have said this, but I woke up this morning and I was, I was kind of thought I dreamt the whole thing, you know? I mean, you know, I talked to Joel about it a bunch yesterday. So I know it's real, but it, it is this weird sort of like, oh wow, it feels like someone that I knew died, even though I didn't know him, and I wasn't obviously like a fan of him necessarily. But I mean, we are roughly contemporaries. I mean, he's from the Philadelphia area. He's two years older than me. So when I was a sophomore in high school, he was a senior, and his younger cousin actually played for my high school varsity team. So Kobe was a sort of like when he was becoming sort of a local legend before he got drafted. He was sort of just always around, like just in the conversation. And so because we're roughly contemporary, I feel like. Like he's been a part of my adulthood, and my, my my adolescence and my adulthood in a weird way, just like a fixture of it. It's just sort of sort of just disorienting that he died so young. So he grows up in Philadelphia, becomes a star at Laura Marion High School, took Brandy to the prom. Mm-hmm. After growing up in Italy. After growing right. up in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. Right. He, you know, said that he was taking his talents to the NBA, you know, many, many years before. Before Braun took before his Braun talents to Miami. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Said that. I think he did the singular there. He said talent. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk for a minute about Kobe as kind of a teen icon. I mean, there was the airball game against the the Jazz in, in 1997, one of his first years in the NBA. And then after that, he fails so spectacularly in playoffs. He stays up all night shooting jumpers. Just like, Gene, what do you think about those kind of early Kobe years, whether in high school or in the beginning of his NBA career. It's weird because the, you know, as you, as you guys talked about in the post Denver years, that willfulness became almost like a brand, right? Like his sort of singular focus became his brand. But before then, that was definitely like what he was known for. It was that he was, when he was like at Lower Marion, it wasn't just that he was six, six when he was kind of rail thin in high school, but that he was sort of a workhorse. I remember, a year after the Sixers drafted Allen Iverson, Kobe was obviously in the same Allen Iverson draft, but the Sixers drafted Larry Hughes the following year. And coming out of sort of some of just the the pickup games in the area was that Kobe Bryant had outplayed like every guard who had been playing sort of in the Sixers orbit. And there were some people apparently who wanted to draft Kobe Bryant and the Sixers brass apparently because he was just that advanced, even though he was obviously still a kid. But there was a lot of talk that he was going to be a better pro. But at the time, it was still very anomalous for high school players to jump to the league and was also especially anomalous for backcourt players to do so. And so I think there was a sense that there was going to be this weird difficulty spike that, you know, that that might not translate to the league as effectively as we all know it did. Yeah, the one person who who didn't have any qualms about that was Jerry West of the Lakers. Isn't there? There's that story that Brian comes out to, to do a workout for the team pre-draft and West leaves the workout early and says... I've seen enough. He's already better than anybody that's on our team right now. <laughs> right. I mean, and I mean, I think there was there's a bunch of layers in 
just the Philadelphia's relationship for the Philadelphia's relationship to Kobe Bryant. I think I sort of resented him just personally because when he went to the Lakers, it looked like he was in line to supplant, you know, Temple legend Eddie Jones at the two guard position. Uh, so I didn't. <laughs> I was like, who is this kid? Like I, I loved Eddie Jones, and so I just had like this long, interminable list of reasons to not like this dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They never dissipated. Well, it's weird because you mentioned this, right? I'm class of 96, 41. So, like, Kobe has always just sort of been part of, like, the celebrity landscape in my life, right? Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, we talked about the Brandy thing, the rap career. Mm-hmm. I remember in some of these media appearances that he'd made over the years, too, where he was clearly, like, trying to make himself into a thing. Like, he was on In the House. You remember the show In the right. House with LL Cool J? Yeah, Yeah, right. He and Derek Fisher, like, went on there. And I was like, oh, yeah, man, like, right. I just totally... That, that I totally forgotten that like Kobe had spent a lot of time like trying to build this image of himself as something more than a basketball. He wasn't just mm-hmm. like the other dudes. Don't forget the Destiny's Child video. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Bugaboo. He was in Bugaboo too. Yeah, I think he was very open all the time. He was he wanted to be Will Smith. That's what he said. But isn't that isn't that a characteristic of Kobe's entire career that he was always looked like he wanted to be something else in addition to being the greatest? He was always really trying very very hard. Until later, until later. <laughs> I think one of the things that always, again, like that, I, I guess it feels weird to say that, but always graded me about him was that he seemed like such a tryhard. Um, yeah. That, I mean, his mm. dalliances with hip hop, I think a lot of us felt like that was like rich boy cosplay. You know, like he was like, you know, he's from the suburbs of Philadelphia. He's, a, you know, the child of an NBA player, right? He's like a rich suburb of Philadelphia. Lower Marion's a really He's Italian. Off. Yes, exactly, right? He's sort of this cosmopolitan kid who was trying what seemed like to some of us like um, trying really hard to be like someone that he wasn't, which probably wasn't completely fair for us to think that. But, you know, we were teenagers. We were not inclined to give to be like, you know, judicious affair. But he always was like clearly positioning himself to be like this pop culture figure. It's kind of remarkable to think. I, I didn't I never really thought about this until yesterday. But like the pre-rape allegations, Kobe Bryant, like just how ubiquitous a pitch man he was, Mm -hmm. he almost got there, right? Like, I mean, he was in McDonald's commercials. I still remember that one commercial. Mm -hmm. Like there was a precocious kid walking off with him and like, I challenge you to play a one-on-one, Kobe. And he's sort of like, oh, (laughs) oh no, be easy on me, kid. It was like Kobe is this like gentle figure, which is like almost impossible to imagine. You know, mm-hmm. the Kobe the last 15 years, um, being somebody who was like joking around with a kid who wouldn't be like, I'll cut your throat out. You know what I mean? Like he sort of was clamoring to be that person, this sort of like pop culture figure in a way that didn't always seem graceful. It felt very, very like deliberate. It felt very A-Rod-ish, right? Because I, I remember, yes. you, and you, you probably remember this, right? It seems remarkable to say this in retrospect, but that all-star game where he was named MVP in Philly and they booed him and he like yep. looked legitimately hurt you yep. know and like that's just like I would never have imagined it like if you move forward 10 years you could never imagine Kobe responding in that way looking hurt by the right. crowd booing him right absolutely I remember that Kobe was legitimately surprised by that and I think that was this part of the other thing was like Kobe was this dude who talked about himself as like a Philadelphian and was also like genuinely and generally disliked by Philadelphians once he became a pro. I mean, he was a Laker, right? So he, they were, you know, one of our, you know, historical rivals. I think there was a sense that he wasn't a real Philadelphian. There's all this stuff that like was layered into this contempt for this dude. And the fact that he played for the Lakers and mm-hmm. there's a lot of antipathy uh, around the country just for people that play for the Lakers. Um, <laughs> and you know his success as a as a pitch man and his success the the perception that he was an all-time great or or on his way to getting there 
was cemented by the fact that he won those three straight titles with Shaq from 2000 to 2002. I mean, there are a lot of prodigies in sports who are anointed as the next great thing and then don't have the trappings or never attain them to go with it. And whatever else you say about Kobe, he succeeded in the terms that we evaluate star athletes. He won those championships. Shaq may have been the best player on a bunch of those teams, but it was Kobe much of the time, if not all the time, who was winning the games at the end because you know, of Shaq's free throw issues and right. and, and Kobe's mm-hmm. more than willingness to take the the final shot. And so when you kind of grapple with Kobe and his tryhardness, you also have to reckon with the fact, Gene, that he was a winner. Yeah. So this is why I'm sort of in politics. <laughs> Here um, we go. Here we go. I remember after those first three titles that I felt like oh, shit, they're going to run off like seven or eight of these things, right? Like, that's what it felt like. Not three, not four. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, that they were just going to be the team of the next decade. Um, Obviously, we know that imploded. But one of the things I think that sort of became clear was that the way Kobe played was not necessarily, like, conducive in a vacuum to championship basketball, right? I mean, some of those years in between, you know, the three-peat and the, and the repeat at the end of the decade, where his teams were, like, mediocre, and they should not have been, right? I mean, like, and part of the reason they... He, he, it seems like sometimes he actively hurt them because... It was in that in-between period when Kobe became the most divisive right. player. And, like, even without the, the rape allegation and the off-court stuff, just strictly from an on-court sense, there was all of this division around Kobe as a player. And it's it's shocking to go back and read about the dysfunction on the Lakers before O'Neal was shipped out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy. Josh, you circulated a story from the LA Times by Mark Heisler. I think, what was it, from 2004? Yeah. It is just jaw-dropping, the details about how much these dudes hated each other, Mm -hmm. how none of them made any effort to get along, and how Phil Jackson basically sort of threw up his hands because he had no clue how to make this work either and was forced to take sides. That's one of the things that's so frustrating about, I mean, at that moment, I remember when they won the third the third championship. I mean, they defeated my Sixers for the second one, which I will never, ever forget. But <laughs> when they won the third one against the Nets, it was like, oh, man, they just don't have any real weaknesses. They're a great defensive team. They they obviously had Shaq, who was a cheat code. And Kobe was just like, his supreme skill, right, was that he was willing to take really difficult shots and he could connect enough of them, right? Um, like he, And that's like the, like a skill that becomes even more important in the playoffs, right? When like teams know your sets and they know what you're going to run. Like sometimes you need somebody who's going to take what would otherwise be an ill-advised 19-foot fadeaway on the baseline. Like sometimes you need someone who can just knock that down uh, with enough regularity to like keep you in games. And that's like what Kobe was really good at. And it seemed like to me that he, for a lot of like from the, the end of that championship run, through the sort of vindication happened at the end of the aughts when they won again, was like he couldn't get out of his own way, right? Like that his desire to win that way, like to win on those terms, meant that the team could not do things that would have made them more competitive, like in the aggregate. And so Kobe had that 81-point game, but like, you know, it just just should have never, there should have been other ways. Like had he become a a better facilitator or some other, done some other things, his team would not have been so broken. Like it seemed like he became this sort of heliocentric thing in which like everything revolved around Kobe and but he also wasn't a facilitator so they just their offense was sort of middling and oh like I mean 
even towards the end, I mean, I'm sorry, I have so many things to complain about Kobe about. Towards the end, when he re-upped on the his extension, I think he signed this huge deal. It was like after he was already diminished. I think he'd already uh, been really significantly injured. It sort of hampered the Lakers for another two seasons. I think there was a way in which Kobe was like legitimately a selfish person, right? Like uh, that he, that they won and they certainly won. I mean, they won five rings. But even you could argue that he wasn't the best player in the finals on any of those teams. But you almost wonder like what would have happened. I mean, this is if like he was put together differently. Every brilliant player is selfish, Gene. Jordan was selfish. LeBron is selfish. But they're able to use that to their advantage. And at the same time, when necessary, do the things that are required to make their team do well. I mean, LeBron carried all those teams to the finals that sucked. I mean, Jordan didn't get to the finals for six years, right? Sure, right. I want to hear what uh, Joel has to say about all this because I feel like you don't have the same visceral or didn't have the same visceral <laughs> reaction. <laughs> and I am so, speaking of visceral, like the whole rings count the rings thing is so, I've never liked that or, or responded to it. And yet, when Gene is going on his, uh, you know, his, his monologue there, I am thinking about, well, like, he did win five titles. But Joel, but Joel. That's a lot of titles. <laughs> yeah, well, You know, I go back and forth on this, right? Because I grew up in Houston. And so as a result, I was not actually even a Jordan fan. Um, I was like uh, one of the few people that, you know, was like, well, I mean, I, I, I would never deny him his greatness, but I was just like, let's just settle down. Like, I was one of the people that would say, well, you know, Kareem, you could make a very good case that Kareem was a better player for longer, that he's the, quote, goat, right? So when Kobe comes along, I am basically agnostic on his career. I'm just like, well, you know, he's... He's clearly great, but like, in it, uh, but I don't. I didn't think that he was like one of the five best players in NBA history. Um, but like, as time went on, as like we started, you know, the the emphasis on like analytics, you know, that sort of started to diminish his career. And I sort of bought into that a little bit. I was just like, well, you know, I mean, you know, he was wildly inefficient. He took just like Gene said, you know, he took these really difficult shots. He was very difficult for other people to play with. Like, I even remember the thing shots. with. <laughs> took a lot of shots and I remember like I mean even like down to the dynamics within the team he mentioned that like Derek Fisher was the the closest teammate he'd ever played with and then they asked Derek and he's like well, man I've never even been to Kobe's house like I just remember right. you know yeah, think things yeah and I, I remember things like that but then like I just saw like so we've we've established that yes mm -hmm. Kobe was wildly inefficient made it very difficult for other people to play with him. Maybe he is not, you know, one of the top five, top 10 players that, you know, we were thinking. But then I think about like what the other players have said about him, the people that actually played against him and the reverence they have for him. I always bring things back to football, but I think about it in terms of like old school football, because we know that like running the ball is more inefficient than passing the ball. But then like defenders and other people, that, the contemporaries in the NFL, like have a lot, a lot of reverence for Derrick Henry. Like tackling Derrick Henry, like man, that shit sucks. Like that's a very hard <laughs> game. And other the people that defended Kobe during that era, they're like, yo, like that dude was like the toughest dude to defend. And I'm just like, I just wonder if like maybe there needs to be more space for that. Like you know, like it, it probably will go in the other direction now that Kobe, you know, had this tragic death. But I just wonder if like, well, you know, maybe we should be taking, you know, hints from the people that actually played against him in some ways. And, you know, they're out there on the floor. They know better, like, what was a more difficult check. You know what I mean? And that's why I've started to kind of come around on Kobe in the last few years when you just hear guy after guy be like, you know, that was one dude I just could not keep in front of me. That was one guy. He would bust my ass, blah, blah, blah. And so I sort of take that seriously. 
What do you guys think changed in sort of phase three of Kobe's career, the sort of 2009 to 2013 when he blew out his Achilles? He played with Pau Gasol. They won those two more ch- those two titles. He became more of a full player. I mean, do you think it was age? Do you think it was maturity? Do you think it was having people on the team that maybe liked him or that he liked? He had a better complimentary cast, right? Yeah, that's that, right. And they were excessively long. I mean, there was a great long team, right? Is that, I mean, yeah. is that maybe just the easiest way to say it? Yeah, they they had some continuity on the team, right? It was like Lamar Odom, mm-hmm. Pau Gasol, uh, Ron Recess was there for a while. Bynum? Hey, b- oh, I forgot about <laughs> I think everyone forgot about yeah. They had some really, really good pieces. I mean, in Pau Gasol, you have someone who's a borderline Hall of Famer himself. And so it was interesting because he had to be a little bit less Kobe-ish. And I think part of the last third of his career was kind of this prolonged swan song. So I think a lot of people were just like sort of giving him his flowers, right? Like I think his contemporaries knew he was winding down. The Achilles injury, I mean, there was just like this sort of sense that one of the avatars of the league was sort of becoming more diminished. And he talked about it a lot too. He he sort of talked in this very like sort of like, he was like, you know, I only have so many more dunks in me. You know, I, I know I'm coming to the end of the thing. So there was like this sort of sympathy towards him. I think that those last few teams were really, uh, the last few really competitive Lakers teams were really illuminating in part because there were some people who like sort of uh, Kobe couldn't do it by himself anymore even though like he won that last finals MVP which was a joke I mean he should not have won that I think that was the game he shot like <laughs> 3 for 19 or something like that 6, uh, for, six for 24 in game geez. 7 jeez oh I was being yeah, that was the run our test game right <laughs> but by that point the idea that he's like this you know, the ultimate clutch player had been solidified. Like, even though the numbers did not bear it out, right? Like, he, it just sort of preceded him, right? Um, I just think there was all this goodwill that people were ready to extend in his direction, especially as he became more diminished. I think he became, like, much more appreciated. I think the same thing sort of happens with people who are less controversial. Like, people didn't, I mean, people loved Manu towards the end of his career because he was, like, you know, he had those, like, Manu-ass moments towards the end. I think that just happens a lot with Dirk, with, like, these these people who are, like, absolute legends, who are in a state of uh, diminution. I just think it's like this impulse to blow them up a little bit, you know? Every time they do something, like, oh, that's vintage Kobe. And I was like, ugh, you know, I get it. But it was exhausting. <laughs> there were these stretches in his career where he played for good teams and stretches where he played for bad teams. And when he was on bad teams, he certainly did not subjugate himself to teammates that were inferior. He didn't, quote unquote, make the right play. Like LeBron... always does you know in 2013 a thing that i had forgotten in the run-up to his tearing his achilles he was playing like 48 minutes a game they were fighting for the eight seed um he was old as hell at that point for for the nba Uh, he was playing more minutes than anybody in the league desperately striving to get them into the playoffs where they would have gotten their their asses kicked. And he was doing it in a very ostentatious, like, shot-first way that put himself at the center of the team and of, of the game. And it was legitimately, I think, what that team needed to attain the ceiling that they were going to attain. But it didn't necessarily seem like Kobe was less happy or less fulfilled in those situations he well loved he loved he loved playing 48 minutes a game and and shooting uh every time down the floor and then he tears his achilles goes and and makes the two free throws and in all of the remembrances we've seen the last couple days joel that is the first or second thing that anybody yeah. mentions about Kobe is that he made those free throws after he tore mm-hmm. his achilles that's absolutely true i mean i hear what you're saying there josh but i also remember that 
there was a time when he got caught on camera, you know, uh, <laughs> dismissing the contributions of Chris Mim, that he was like really cruel to Smush Parker, that he threatened to, you know, go to the Clippers and stuff like that. And remember, there was the playoff series against the Suns. The post Shaq year, where he basically quit in Game Seven. Do you remember that? Yeah. Does that? Yeah. Yep. He refused from, to shoot. Yeah. He refused to shoot. So, like, I mean, he, you know, you're you're right. I mean, towards the end of the career, we sort of like made up. You know, a lot of the mythology took over from there. But there were some moments in his career where, like, he was not like ultimate team winner, love basketball guy. Uh, when he really undermined his teammates and his franchise and didn't necessarily give his all. Um, and I just, I mean, that's just part of like, that's being a competitor, right? Like, I mean, that's fair for anybody else, but like with Kobe, like that kind of gets missed because we've, we've just decided that he was the heir to Jordan, you know? Nick Green's piece yesterday was fantastic. It was exactly right. It's like, there won't be another Kobe Bryant specifically because the way he plays is just gone, right? The way he plays is just has left the league. And so even the players who sort of met, who patted themselves after him, like DeMar DeRozan, they, are considered like really inefficient, right? They're they're considered like less valuable than other players who can shoot threes or get more efficient shots. And so in a real way, like Kobe Bryant was the last of this line of mid-range shooting hyper-athletic swingmen. And I just, I don't know, that, that to me, growing up in the 90s, that was always the way I understood like the quintessential basketball player, you know? Like that was the, the apex of the sport was somebody who could do those things. I'm sad about what he represented for basketball on a bunch of levels, I guess. Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. All right, I wanted to let you guys know a reminder that Joel is going to be touring for Slow Burn Season 3, Biggie and Tupac. It's going to be a really good live show, a totally new story, interviews with guests, people that knew Biggie and Tupac, as well as other journalists. And it's going to be in D.C. on the 5th of February, New York on the 6th, L.A. on the 11th, San Francisco on February the 13th. You can find out more information and get tickets at slate.com slash live. Also wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, Joel and Stefan and I are going to continue our conversation about Kobe Bryant. That's our whole show this week. And the bonus segment is more of our conversation. We had a lot that we wanted to say and talk about. If you want to hear it and you're not a member, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. All right, let's bring in Lindsay Gibbs. She is the author of the Power Plays newsletter about women and sports, to which you should subscribe. Lindsay, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Back in 2016, you wrote a piece titled The Legacy of the Kobe Bryant Rape Case uh, for Think Progress. In the aftermath of his death, it has been fascinating to watch how the rape case has been rehashed by the media. And I wanted to ask you first, sort of give us your, your sort of perspective on how you think the inclusion of this chapter of his life has been handled. 
I think it's tough because we, the media and fans didn't do a really good job reckoning with it and discussing it when he was alive. So it makes sense that it would be really also tough, even more tough to discuss when he's um, passed away, especially so tragically. I think that I'm seeing two extremes. I'm seeing people who were really affected by the rape case and really remember that so much. And so they are using that as a way to say that all the other grief about him is invalid. And I'm also seeing the other extreme, which is people going into deep um, detail talking about his on-court legacy and off-court legacy while referring to the rape cases, that Colorado thing, and not going into details. And really, neither of those are sufficient. I mean, I think it's, it is a big part of his legacy. It's one that he never really properly grappled with. And the media let him get away with not grappling with and addressing for so long. And so I don't think you can completely ignore it. At the same time, I don't think it should be the only thing that is discussed. And I understand why a lot of people, you know, want to discuss other things about his legacy right now. On ESPN, which is how, you know, I had it on all day yesterday and and this morning, they were really sticking to sports. There was not, I don't want to say on SportsCenter, there was not any mention because I wasn't watching the the whole time. But if there was, it was extremely passing and it was entirely focused, I guess, as you would expect on the outpouring from his NBA peers, from other people in the world, from the action in the games, from the documentaries they'd done where the all-time greats are talking about Kobe's greatness. But it creates, and, and ABC News did a special report on Kobe that only mentioned it very, very, very glancingly and was extremely um, hagiographic towards Kobe. And it creates this kind of environment where if you do mention it, if you do talk about it, if you do try to reckon with it, it's seen as not in keeping with the tone of the moment, of the coverage, of being being reverent towards someone who, as you said, died tragically. It feels like, based on what what's normative, that you're, um, you know, being impolitic somehow if you bring it up. Right. You're being a social justice warrior. You're, you know, too soon is the thing everyone says. And it's hard, though, because, like I said, I mean, nobody, you know, I would get attacked the same way when I brought it up when he was alive, you know, so there was never um, a right time to talk about it. I don't have the the right answer here. I know that I, because I wrote this piece and people have been reaching out to me over the past um, 24 hours, you know, my, my direct messages on Twitter are filled. It's either, um, you know, it's, it's the very angry and the very ugly, but it's also a lot of survivors reaching out who are having very complicated feelings and are really upset that they're not hearing it talked about and want to know if there's something wrong with them because it's all they can think about. Because the thing about that rape case is part of the legacy it left was the extreme victim shaming that his lawyer um, did and that the media ran with and that the way that victim was treated, I mean, 
there are studies that say like it kept other people from coming forward. People saw how she was treated and they didn't want to come forward after that because of, I mean, her, you know, there was no anonymity. The law didn't protect her. The legal system didn't protect her. And the media certainly didn't protect her. And so, you know, a lot of people do remember that and remember him never, um, never reckoning with that and never, you know, never saying anything about that. Him, him still, um, enforcing the non-disclosure agreement, you know, a, a couple years ago, he did a interview with the Washington Post, a big feature, and they reached out to her and, you know, she couldn't talk because of the NDA. And so I think that that's important. That impacted a lot of people too, as did, of course, his basketball and his work in women's basketball and his relationship with his daughter. It all exists and it's uncomfortable that it all exists, but it, it does. And ignoring it doesn't help. I think ignoring it just makes survivors from all communities feel more shame, feel more confused and feel like they're not a part of you know, our culture, our society. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, sort of building on your point there that um, a big part of the glue that holds rape culture together is the idea that what happens to women matters less than the prerogative of men, right? Or like mm. the way that we want to remember men or, you know, how they go about their lives, right? It's like it's, we're always discussing like intentions or whether it's indiscretion, you know, like it's, oh, it's a youthful indiscretion or something like that. Survivors learn that like what happened to them doesn't matter. And so people get that from like police, you know, the colleges, institutions, and now sports. And so like we're always like prioritizing like here with Kobe, like, you know, people sort of dancing around the idea that, yo, this dude was like credibly accused of rape. And they're like, no, this is not a good time to talk about it, you know. But like back then, it was like, oh, this is a guy with the future, um, you know, and he's expressed remorse or he says he didn't do it. And so it's important to like keep it in context or he was he was successful and he wouldn't have needed to do that. So like, why are we discussing this? This is not that or, you know, so like when is it when is there ever a good time to talk about this stuff, you know? If it had happened in his youth, we would have said he had a great future. But now, you know, yesterday when we, when, you know, we saw people talking about trying to give some context to what happened in Colorado, they say, well, you know, he died holding his daughter. He's a father now. We shouldn't be talking about that. I was like, well, man, when is it, when is it okay to talk about this being a part of his legacy? It makes me mad because I just think that people need to let survivors have that and even just sit with it for themselves. If your support and your admiration for Kobe is strong enough, like that, if you like, if you really loved Kobe and he was really important to you and you idolized him, that should be real enough to sustain an analysis or a review of his life as he lived it. Like nobody is telling you how to mourn or that you can't feel sorry for the fact that he died or that it was a tragedy because it is. But like that should not therefore dictate the way others choose to remember him or what we want to say about his death. And if you have a problem with it, you should get the hell off of social media. You should turn off TV and mourn on your own time. But I don't think that anybody should like get mad at people for wanting to talk about this and talk about, hey, did he make proper amends? How did this affect the victim? I mean, the victim today is watching all of this. She's, She's out there somewhere. All yeah. Watching all of this. And like people are saying, we don't want to talk about that now as if what happened to her or what she says happened to her didn't matter. And that's just really frustrating. 
Yeah. And and victims everywhere are watching. Survivors in your life right now, everyone listening, mm-hmm. you know, there are survivors in your life listening to this and reading this and hearing all the dismisses. And it's it's tough because I do hear, you know, I hear a lot of people from the black community say, don't tell us how to feel. I hear people in the women's basketball community who he meant so much saying, don't tell us how to feel right now. But the fact is there's survivors in all of these communities, you know, who, mm-hmm. you know, survivors aren't in a community all to themselves. They're part of all these other communities. And it's so it's so tough because I've been been hearing from so many of them and I don't know what to tell them. I mean, I, you know, I've been very vocal about my feeling on Kobe's legacy and the way um, the media let, let him get away with it. And I was crying yesterday over his death and over the death of Gigi. Like I all of these emotions are valid. I think what's, what gets tough is when, like you said, Joel, you start saying how he mattered to me matters more than how he mattered to you, you know, mm-hmm. and how he mattered to you is inconveniencing me. So you need to be quiet. And on the specific matter of the case itself, Lindsay, it's incredibly instructive to go back and read what happened because the charges were horrifying. The police interviews with the victim and with Bryant were incredibly disturbing. And when the case was resolved, and people might not remember, but the victim declined to testify And prosecutors wound up dropping the case. And then there was a civil lawsuit and a settlement with Bryant. Bryant issued an apology, obviously through his lawyers and PR people and whatever. But the apology read through the lens of today is also astounding. I mean, Bryant acknowledged that he may have sexually assaulted her. He basically admits that he in all likelihood raped her. He acknowledges that she said it was not consensual. And reading through all of that again, you know, it's hard to read and it's important to read and it's important to fit it into the framework of this global icon's life. I'm going to read I'm going to read from that apology. He said, in part, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. Um, I also want to just note the part from uh, the police reports and interviews that is the most chilling when you go back and look at it. The victim, alleged victim, said that Kobe said to her, you're not going to tell anybody, right? During that the alleged assault, she says, I said no, and he didn't hear me or ask me to say it louder. Wanted me to turn around and look at him while I said it. She said that Brian asked her the question three or four times. When I went back and revisited this in 2016, it was when he retired that I wrote this, my piece. I didn't remember that much about it. You know, I'd been in high school during the time I remembered the apology ring that he gave Vanessa. I remembered that press conference. I remembered a little bit about it, but I didn't remember the details and really going back and digging into how disturbing, like you said, the allegations really were, how she was treated by the media and that apology. I mean, who there's a lot to it. <laughs> there's just a lot to it. There's a lot to it. And I think that like there is a lot that we can learn from it if we wanted to, right? It's funny we talked about like how shocking yesterday was. But do you know what else was shocking? When those allegations came out. Like I remember waking up in bed and seeing it, you know, the ESPN crawl 
you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, uh, charged with rape or, you know, facing rape allegations. And I was like, what? Like, it was it was as shocking to me as looking yesterday at the news that he had died. And I can remember I was like, what? I don't, I don't, I don't remember how old I was, 24, 25 year old. It was like one of the first times, which is sad. I mean, it's and terrible. But the idea that just because like just because somebody could have sex with whoever they want, that sometimes that they rape people. You know what I mean? Like I was like, oh, wow, like somebody is accusing them of that. So we could learn from that. But also, I think the other thing is, too, um, and this is something that like men and people that perpetuate you know sexual violence against people have to learn is that. I believe Kobe when he says that he doesn't believe that he raped her. But, like, that is, like, a failure. First of all, that doesn't, like, clear you, like, um, in terms of your legal or moral obligations to other people. But, like, it is a failure of consent. Like, a a failure to learn what consent is. Because I've always said this about Jameis Winston, too. I was like, I truly believe that Jameis Winston believed that he's not a rapist or that he committed sexual assault. But, like, that doesn't mean you didn't do it. And I think that's, like, that's the sort of thing that, like, maybe people can learn. I, I don't know if, we, if we're going to learn that lesson or not, if people are ever going to grapple with it, because even right now people don't want to talk about this as part of Kobe's legacy. But, like, there's a chance there to be like, yo, like, this is a good time to review, like, what does consent mean to you? I never, And, man, even going back to the Derrick Rose case, like, Derrick Rose, was it this in his – Civil case where he's, he they asked him what consent was and he's like, what does that mean? Is that am I getting that right? Yeah, he yeah. he displayed a lacking knowledge of what consent was, and yeah, I totally agree. Especially for these you know these athletes, that their whole life they've been you know lifted up, praised by everyone in there. You know, they haven't heard no often from anybody about anything. You know, because of because of their status and their talent, and it's um yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think I kept hoping as Kobe grew up, and especially as he became such a fixture in the women's sports community and he had these daughters, I kept hoping that maybe he would reckon with it, you know, some way and somehow. And obviously, we will never know if he would have, but it always felt like a missed opportunity for someone who did seem so insightful and to care so much about women that that conversation couldn't be had. And obviously now it won't be. Lindsay, you're in Connecticut right now. The UConn women are going to play the U.S. women's national team on Monday night. And Kobe had talked about one of the clips that was circulating was him telling Reggie Miller that his his daughter Gigi was hell-bent on playing for UConn. And, you know, another clip. Let's actually play it now. This is from Jimmy Kimmel Live, where Kobe talks about, again, his daughter Gigi. Do you think your daughter might want to play in the WNBA? She does for sure. She does. Like, I, I don't. It means this, this kid, man. She's Wouldn't like, that be great, dude, man? I, I'm telling you, the, be, the best thing, the best thing that happens is when we go out and, and, and fans will come up to me and she'll be standing next to me and they'll be like, "Hey, you gotta have a boy. You and V gotta have a boy, man. You have somebody carry on the tradition, the legacy." She's like, "Oh, I got this. <laughs> you know, boy, for that, I got this. Like that's right." Yes, you do. You got this. Kobe's relationship with Gigi, how they would go all around the country and watch games together, uh, girls' high school games, NBA games, women's college he games. He coached her team, her um, travel team. They were The helicopter was on the way to, to a, a travel game. Lindsay, this is a 
something that people really appreciated while Kobe was alive, um, the fact that they had this relationship and were doing this together. And there's been so much more talk about it since, uh, you know, the helicopter crash, too. It's staggering to me how much he meant to the women's basketball community. And of course, everyone on Team USA um, w- was close to him. And a lot of them know him through the Olympics. I know Diana Taurasi, you know, she was always called White Mamba. That was always her nickname. Um, I was at practice on Sunday, but the news broke right after practice. So haven't gotten to talk to any of the players yet. But I imagine it's going to be a very emotional night because of what he and Gigi meant to... Um, USA basketball and to the UConn program specifically. And, you know, the more I think about it and all of the work he did with women's college players, women's high school players, the pros, and how really passionate he was, it makes me sad that that's such an exception, right? That his love for and support of these women is such an exception to the rule. And I think that if there's anything I hope that a lot of people can learn from him is that I hope that maybe, um, you know, other men in sports who have, you know, positions of power will follow in his footsteps in this way. And other dads will take their daughters to um, WNBA games and encourage their love of sports. Because I really think that part of the reason why all the work he did meant so much is because it was so rare. It was so rare to see an icon of his status I mean, follow every bit of the women's game the way he did. Stefan, you've coached your daughter's teams for years, and that's been a huge part of your life, the coaching and how it's strengthened and built your relationship with your daughter and and her teammates. This must have been really hard for you to think about that in the context of Kobe and oh, Gigi. Oh, entirely. Um, I can completely relate. You know, I don't have an elite athlete as a kid. I don't have aspirations for my daughter to play, to play some professional sport. But realizing sort of how he got it, he was a good youth sports coach. You know, he understood from the clips I've seen, from the testimonials to him. There's a, a piece that Tom Farry, formerly of ESPN, who's now one of the directors of the Aspen Institute, their youth sports campaign. And Farry told this story about Kobe getting outraged watching an opposing basketball coach berate and scream at the girls on his team during a game. And Kobe going up to the guy after the game and saying, if you ever do that again, you're going to have to deal with me. He understood like what kids need. He also had a really competitive streak. I mean, I think I mentioned on the show once how Kobe had gripped participation trophies as unnecessary. And the only use for them was that kids should use them as motivation to become great again. So he had the drive (laughs) of the elite, the superstar, but also the the sort of gentle understanding about what kinds of of coaching and teaching kids need to enjoy and do well at sports. Joel, in the New Yorker profile by uh, Ben McGrath from 2014, he talks about Gigi, who was then only seven years old, and how competitive she was and playing games with her and how much he saw of himself in her. And I put together a piece Yesterday, just looking at, um, you know, from Kobe's Instagram, the highlights that he posted that highlight videos from Ball is Life and Slam of Gigi and watching her, you know, play and how great she was. It's it's really devastating to watch those videos. I mean, what what are your thoughts about Gigi in particular? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think that like it's an obvious tragedy. In addition to like just the nobody should die at the age of thirteen years old, right? Um, but then like we're denied the opportunity to see her grow into whatever she was going to become. Like the idea that like Kobe would have had a high level basketball player in the women's game is something that like I mean that would have been fantastic to have like watched him you know, dote on her, be there as that is happening and like watch her, you know, become whoever she was going to be. You know, that's just really hard. Like just watching those videos of her and seeing how much, like even down to her biting her jersey in the way that he did, <laughs> you know, that he was known, like, you know, like the, the mannerisms that she had picked up, right? It's just really heartbreaking. And I mean, yeah. like, there's, I wish I had something like more like profound to say other than that that sucks, but it's really, 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 really sad. And yeah. It is interesting because I remember from that story, if I have it right, the New Yorker profile, at one point they were very heavy into soccer and because that was like Kobe's, you know, first sport that he was really good at and really great. And then like all of a sudden it flips in like a few years. Um, and like it also kind of got him back into the game, too. Right. Because he mentioned that which I don't necessarily believe that he barely watched basketball anymore. And that, like he didn't, you know, he he totally had walked away from the game and that like, you know, it was Gigi that wanted to watch basketball. Not, you know, and so he just started to get tuned back into the game. But um if, if that is true, what a gift, you know, what a gift that like she gave him in that way too. Um it's not just like what he imparted on her, but like what she gave back to him. Um an opportunity to see the game through another lens, an opportunity to re engage with not just the men's game but the women's game so yeah uh, it's just it's just really heartbreaking man and man, you, you just hope that you know whoever is around Vanessa Bryant right now is holding her real tight yeah and Lindsay I mean I think as you can tell from this conversation Kobe wasn't any one thing that we can have a conversation about him that encompasses the sexual assault allegation and his parenting and his relationships with you know women players and that that's the conversation we should be having I think the important thing is how one doesn't necessarily have to invalidate the other, right? It's not about a competition between these facets of him, but it's about holding them together, you know, and not completely drowning out one or the other. I think one of the things that's made this so hard is that Kobe was so present. I mean, he had just been, you know, um, tweeting to LeBron. He was courtside those games. I'm sure he would have probably been at this UConn-USA basketball game Game tonight. He was everywhere. He was still such an active presence in the sports world and in, you know, pop culture at large. And just to have him gone so suddenly, it's it's stunning. Lindsay Gibbs writes the Power Plays newsletter. She's also one of the panelists on the Burn It All Down podcast. Lindsay, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more of the show. And this week's show, it's about Kobe Bryant, our bonus segment. We're going to continue our conversation. We talk so much about the comparisons to Jordan. And one thing that I think about, you know, the great Wright Thompson profile of Michael Jordan a few years ago, you know, Michael at 50 and how he just seemed to be like struggling. You know, he didn't seem like a very happy person. And because of those comparisons and because Kobe had so closely modeled his game, his life, his style, you know, all this to Michael, like it was natural to think. Man, a guy who loves basketball this much and has been this excellent at it, how are they going to adjust to post-NBA life? 
to hear that, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.